For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Welcome to The Rock Podcast. A lot of things go on during a typical worship service, and here in Nehemiah chapter 8, we learn what should always be front and center when God's people assemble for worship. Now let's join Pastor Ross with a message entitled, The Preeminence of the Word of God. Alrighty, are you ready for a Bible study? Nehemiah chapter 8. We left off, we are going through Nehemiah chapter by chapter, verse by verse. That's what we do here. Look forward to what the Lord has for us this evening after we ask him uh, for some grace. Now, Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that this word before us is living. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us the word of God is alive and sharp and ready to do work in our hearts and lives. And so we open to that, Lord. I want to hear from you. I want to be changed. I need to be corrected and comforted and instructed in the ways of the Lord. And so we just give ourselves over to you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's a famous landmark in San Francisco in Pacific Heights. Uh, It's a mansion. It's the old Spreckles uh, mansion. Uh, it It has three floors and 55 rooms. It just reminds me of the White House. I have a picture of it. Perhaps you've seen it. We, we used to live in the city for a few years when the kids were young, and we drive up and down those streets, and especially at Christmas time, it's kind of cool to, to look. There's a rear, uh, that's the view looking out to, toward the bay there. Now, uh, the reason I bring it up is because I read recently uh, some remarks about the uh, successful author who now lives in that house, in that mansion. Um, success, she said, uh, has a price, and not everything is as beautiful on the inside of those walls uh, as on the outside. And she talked about her life struggle, uh, multiple marriages in the article I read, uh, divorces, heartbreak, a struggle with mental illness in the home, and uh, eventually drugs and a tragic death of one of the children. Um, beautiful structure. There are protective walls all around it. It just has a massive security uh, system. Uh, but inside, inside was the problem. And, you know, I have a slide here of the wall of Jerusalem. This is a very strong message here in the middle of the book of Nehemiah, really, um, about this kind of paradox is that uh, you can have the restoration of the wall and the temple and the houses and the outward structures in place. But if you don't have life within, what good is any of the outward structures as beautiful as they can be. And so uh, this massive security barrier has been uh, completed now here in the book of Nehemiah. You'll recall that it had been broken down for, what, 150 years. Uh, The temple as well just laid in ruins and the houses of the people who uh, lived in Jerusalem demolished. 
in keeping with a prophecy that said if they continued in their rebellion, the Lord would chastise them, and he kept that promise. Um, So 150 years in that state, but then the Lord showed mercy and kept his other promises about bringing them back uh, to the land. And so a century and a half after that wall was torn down and the temple as well and the people removed to all parts of the Middle East, mostly around Iraq and uh, Iran, um, they were coming back. And so the Lord provided such wonderful grace and what I call Operation Return to the Promised Land. So Ezra focused on the temple restoration that's up and running here in chapter 8. And um, also Nehemiah focused on the wall. And so um, last week we saw that they brought 45,000 repatriated Jews back. So really only 2% of the Jews really returned right there in the beginning to help Ezra and Nehemiah. So that with 45,000 people, uh, they started to do their work. And so the temple went up, the wall went up, uh, the houses were up, the structure was there, but then the lives of the people. And so we saw this last week up from the ashes, the hope of restoration, uh, the city begins to take uh, shape again. So here in chapter 8, and uh, these, uh, these are the verses that we looked at last week, verses 1 through 8, an intense, God-inspired uh, effort to never let what happened happen again to them. So now you have the outer form, everything's good to go, but you have people who are going to be now living there Is the same thing going to happen? Well, that can't happen because uh, the Holy Spirit wants to work in them some changes. And so uh, to have the outward appearance, you know, it means nothing. Form and appearance if there's no life or relationship with God. And so no sooner than the last of those gates got hung, uh, they brought in the pastors and the worship team, and you'll recall that they had a um, kind of a worship uh, not a conference, we would call it a conference, but uh, a convocation is kind of a fancy word for an assembly. And so uh, they had a a dedication service is what I'm trying to say. And so uh, here's the shortened paraphrase just to give us some context for jumping in because this we finished, uh, but we need it for context to go on to verse nine. So let me read here. Here's what's going on now. The structures are in place. And all the people assembled in the square by the gate. Everything's good to go. They ask Ezra the scribe, and in Hebrew, the scribes, uh, they were the scholars or the professors of the Bible authorities. So out comes, he's a priest. Uh, he comes to bring out the book of the law of Moses, and the law of Moses is, are the scrolls Genesis to Deuteronomy, the first five books of our Bible which the Lord had given Israel to obey. So out comes Pastor Ezra with the Bible. So on October 8th, you can do the math and and find out when it happened. So October 8th, Ezra brought the word of God before the assembly, which included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand from early morning until noon. You'll recall this from last week. He read aloud to everyone. All the people listened closely to the word of God Ezra stood on a high wooden platform, and the Levites, just pastors, stood with him. 
When the people saw him open the scroll, they all rose to their feet. Then Ezra praised the Lord, and all the people said, Amen, Amen, as they lifted their hands. And see, all these things we see in today, uh, our worship services as well. Then they bowed and worshiped the Lord. The elders, pastors with him also taught the people there. They read from the word of God and clearly explained the meaning, helping the people understand each passage. And so I just want to review just a little bit before we go forward. And so if you're taking notes, uh, the people were taught the word of God. When God's people gather, the focus point, the heartbeat of Judaism and then now Christianity is always teaching and proclaiming and understanding and obeying the word of God. So some things never change at all. So it's been 2,461 years uh, since we're talking about this chapter. But uh, you know what? From time immemorial, it's the preaching and teaching of God's word uh, by God-called and qualified men to, God, to God's redeemed people for the purpose of clearly understanding the will of the Lord for obedience and blessing. That's what it's all about. And it has been all about that. And in the New Testament, it's all about that as well. Listen to Paul here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter four. Now Christ gifted the church with pastors and teachers their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and the knowledge of God's son that will be mature in the Lord. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they, sh- they sound like the truth. Uh, now, this has always been the case. I read a great quote where the church strays from its foundation of the word of God. It ceases uh, to be the church. Until Jesus comes, that's what it's all about. If you're in a church, the word of God has to be front and center. Um, I was doing a retreat, and I was doing what I do. I put the scriptures up, I t- explain it, apply it, talk about it. And uh, a guy comes up to me, he was a pastor, and he said, do you do that every week? I said, do what every week? I preach every week, yeah, but do you do what you did here every week? I said, yeah, that's what I do. I I preach from the Bible, we go verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter, put it up on the screen, we talk about it and apply it, explain it, right? He goes, wow, I don't think I could do that. He's a pastor. Right? I don't think I can do that. And he said, you know, my church is really struggling. It's never really grown, you know? <laughs> there might be a reason for that, you know? There, you know, people say, how did you go from uh, 20 people to hundreds of people? Hundreds of people go to this church. I don't have the number. It's somewhere around 700 people. Why? Put the Bible up. Explain it. Apply it. That's all you have to do. People are hungry for the word of God. And that's the most important thing. Jesus said you can't live on pizza and, and, and spaghetti and meatballs and pho 
which happens to be my favorite, you know, that's uh, Vietnamese noodles. You can't live by bread alone. You can't just live. You will die without the word of God. And so the word of God is always going to be uh, front and center. Now, there'll come a day when this will, my, I'll be out of a job. You know why? Because the living word of God will be front and center. What does the prophecy say? It says, a time is coming, says the Lord. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Because the living word of God will be visible for all the world to see. Now, I may be out of a job, but I'm going to get a new job, right? And that's the joy of serving the Lord. We trade in our old jobs for a new job without any curse involved. And so it'll be a job that brings great uh, delight to him. But in the meantime, there shall be platforms. There shall be open books. There shall be men called of God to preach. There shall be explanations of the word of God, equipping uh, God's people uh, um, with the written word of God. And I love what Paul calls the word of God, the word of life in Philippians chapter two. So what was it all about the word of God for? Well, the word of God, a light to our path, hidden in our hearts, it keeps us from sinning. It brings a radiance to your eyes, Psalm 19. It brings sweetness like honey to our souls. It renews our minds. It heals our wounds. It washes our consciences. It comforts our hearts and instructs our lives. It keeps us from deception. It fills us with joy and sustains us uh, with hope. And so this is what happens in the church. And be careful because the church is straying away. Now you get a bunch of stories and you get the dialogue. You know, I just really like that in the Old Testament and New, it's called the law of the Lord, not the suggestions of God. It's called the law because Jews said the Torah. The Torah is the commands, the instruction, and that's the reverence of what comes from God are not suggestions and things like options, but the Jews saw it as, wow, God is speaking, therefore let's call it the instruction or the law. And so the law came down, and uh, so inside those newly constructed walls, on the inside of those newly returned Jews, is nourishment and a change and power to be who they're supposed to be. The word of life is doing its work. So we go on to verses 9 through 12. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, so this guy's a pastor, he's like got his doctorate, PhD, and the Levites, the other pastors involved who were instructing the people, said to them all, this day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some of those who have nothing prepared. Uh, send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. A real famous scripture there. The Levites, the pastors, calmed all the people, saying, be still. That word in the Hebrew means hush. 
Shush, it's okay. This is a, a sacred, a good day. Don't grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink to celebrate and send portions of food with great celebration and great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. So uh, now the, we've seen the preeminence of God's word and the, the preaching and teaching of it. It's the central focus of, of our lives as belonging to God. And now, if you're taking notes, number two, the, the people comprehend the word of God. Uh, now, just it's so beautiful to see those words because now they understood what the word of God meant and they could, they could relate to it. So uh, the people comprehend. Now, they begin to listen, verse 9, to the Bible study, right? And they're moved, and they start to cry and mourn as they listen. Uh, they're grieved, right? And, and they're understanding the law of the Lord. And so what's happening here is, you know, the Bible says about the Bible that the word of God goes into us down deep to where the soul and the spirit divide, Wow, wherever that is, that is deep within you. Who can separate your soul from your spirit? I mean, honestly, Bible scholars write books about what is the soul and the spirit. How do they differ? But the word of God gets in there and goes straight down into the very center. And so, of course, there's some kind of emotional response when you hear the word of God. So comprehending is uh, really everything. I mean, if you can't understand, you know, that's the focus of this passage, this chapter, is the people finally are understanding because the pastors are making a real effort to break it down to them and to put it in, in terms that they can understand and be changed. If you don't get what the guy is saying, you know, what good is it, you know? Uh, I mean, I've been in, in services where in other languages, and it, it's kind of nice to sit there, and I can kind of feel the tone, but I don't know what he's saying. So I, I leave out of there really unmoved because there's no comprehension, right? And so what made them cry? Well, the word was doing its work in a couple ways. So uh, first of all, if you're going to comprehend the word and you're going to be emotionally moved and touched, uh, you're going to have to combine what you're hearing with faith. Now, this is out of Hebrews, uh, chapters 3 and 4, where it talks about the Jewish, their ancestors who died in the wilderness. Why did they die in the wilderness? And they didn't get into the promised land because they failed. They heard the same gospel, Paul says. They heard the gospel. It's an Old Testament form, but they heard the gospel, but they didn't combine it with faith. That means, yeah, 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 it's just information. They didn't personalize it. When you listen to a Bible study, you have to combine it with faith. God, somewhere in all of this, is speaking to me personally. When that happens, then there's some kind of emotional connection and there's some changing. And sometimes there's joy and sometimes there's sorrow because there's some changes that need to happen. So I, I'm wondering uh, where they're reading that made them so sad. Now, it could have been anywhere from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. He's got those scrolls. 
So I wonder what he's reading. You know, we don't know what he was reading. I'm thinking what moved them to tears and, and grief, maybe it was the, the Genesis chapter 3 with the garden and uh, the serpent and everything was so good. And then all of a sudden, you know, utter chaos. And maybe they identified with that and started weeping or uh, how God delivered their ancestors, busted them out of Egypt. You remember that? You know, and how they really bit the hand that fed them. The Lord said, hey, I lifted you up. I put you on my wings like an eagle and lifted you out of there. And then they have to read about what, how Israel responded so terribly uh, to that great love and grace. Or, or maybe just the straight up there, he's reading in Leviticus. You know, that wouldn't make anybody cry, you know? Uh, and, and uh, you know, just the flat-out exhortations against worshiping stuff and money and sexual immorality, giving into lust and lying and greed. And yeah, so maybe they're crying about that. Who knows? We don't really know. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, the word of God, that's part of the intended work of God, through his word is to convict us, and part of being convicted is a rebuke or correction. That's what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. The word of God is intended to, to rebuke means to slap upside of the head a little bit, like, you know? And how many of you have ever had that experience with the word of God? <laughs> yeah, all of you, put your hands in the air. So correction sometimes, you know, it's a good thing to be sad. Sometimes it, tears are good uh, when you're reading the Bible. If you're under conviction of the Holy Spirit, Second uh, Corinthians chapter seven verse ten says, "Godly uh, sorrow is a good thing. It leads uh, to life and repentance." And so sometimes it hurts to be corrected, or it's humbling. It's really humbling to read about unselfish people. People like Job who says, you know what? Though he slay me, yet I, I trust him. It's just a very humbling experience sometimes to hold the mirror up and see uh, all of the flaws sometimes. And so that's what's upsetting them. So the tears are evidence of some pain. But interestingly, in verse 9, the pastors offer some guidance and correct them from crying over some of the things that they're hearing. Now, why? It's very scriptural to have godly sorrow and to be moved to tears. Well, a couple things are going on here. I mean, you know, we cry. Psalm 42, uh, David talking about, he says, my tears have been my food. He says, I'm so grieved I can't even eat. You know what I eat every day? My tears. You see, I've lost my appetite because of my grief because of my sin. And so we, we see that's okay. Well, why are the pastors saying, shh, stop this. Don't do this. Why? Well, a couple of things. Number one, balance. Balance. Listen, Expositor's Bible Commentary put it this way. The powerful exposition of the word of God can bring deep conviction of sin, but repentance must not degenerate into a self-centered remorse or loathing, but must issue forth into joy in God's forgiving goodness. I really like that. They noticed, hey, wait a second here. 
The tears were initially a good thing, and then uh, the nose of the plane is just still diving down. It's like, when are we going to pull up with the gospel, folks? And so they're seeing you just, uh, you know, the point isn't to hate yourself or self-loathing. The point is to love grace. The point is to love God and appreciate what he's done for us, even though, even though we have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So uh, the other thing I see is why they're shushing them is because it's not the time and place. They're like a week out from Thanksgiving, Jewish Thanksgiving, Sukkot. We're going to talk about that because they're going to celebrate it in the next verse. So it just so happens that it's time for Thanksgiving. So they're like, listen, God just miraculously put up this wall. The temple's up and running. The houses are rebuilt. There's 45,000 Jews back from Iraq here. Look what he's doing. He's doing a major work. It's not the time now in this time and place for you to be crying. It's a time of celebration. He says, you know, I mean, come on, if... An American Thanksgiving, you're sitting around the table. Are you going to say, hey, let's start by talking about all the things you're miserable about? Okay, so, so I know there are some relatives who would, might take you up on that. Uh, but that's it's the wrong thing. You don't start pouring out all your problems at somebody's wedding reception. You really don't do that. You, can you just wait a couple hours before you just... Pour it all out, you know. It, it wasn't the time and the place for tears. Maybe a few in the beginning. But they needed to realize what God was doing. And it was a beautiful thing. He's saying, uh, besides all of that, you're missing the point of what's going on here. It's not how, what a terrible person you are. It's how wonderful God is. It's not how helpless and broken you are. It's how able and willing he is. It's not about the list of the laws you've broken. It's about the list of the blessings he's ready to extend to you. That, my friend, is the gospel. Yes, there's some offensive message beforehand that humbles us. Uh, but, but if it's a real work of God, there's going to be joy, you know. Just time and place, balance. Somebody asked me once, a long time ago, I don't even remember if it was at this building or not, it just came up to me, and I kind of could tell by the tone that it was going to be critical, and uh, it was, and he goes, where are the, where are the tears? I said, excuse me, what, what do you mean? Where's the weeping? Where's the repentance? Where's the move of God? I said, well, you know, did you see the hands? A few hands cut went up today and and did you see the joy and the worship and did you see how the people were loving each other but what where the where's the weeping it's not time for weeping there might be weeping on a friday night sometime we gather and it's good friday or something like that but the fruit of the holy spirit is joy and jesus was even a man of sorrows it says that he had more joy than any other human being and joy, what did Jesus say about joy? He wants us to have joy. He said in, at the Last Supper, these things I tell you so that you can have joy and that they would be full and complete. I love, Psalm 16, what does it say? He, it says, at your right hand, there are pleasures evermore. 
you know, we don't think of God in this way, but, you know, it's not all about weeping. And it's not all about partying either. Somewhere in the middle there. That's, what, that's why you have a pastor. A pastor can say, whoa, you're way over here. Come on back over here. Or, whoa, now you're way over here. That's what those pastors are doing. They're saying, hey, the Lord said, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, to help you, not to harm you, but to give you a hope in the future. And when did he say that? Jeremiah 29, 11 was as they waved goodbye from the promised land 150 years before. As they were being exiled and everything was a pile of rubble, Jeremiah said, I know, speaking, God speaking through Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you. Plans not to harm you. And so he's saying, this day, the Lord brought that blessing to fulfillment. So there's a reason for hope. There's a reason for joy. Uh, One writer put it this way. The key to that joy that sustains us is abiding faith in the word of God, no matter the outward circumstance. And so that just that beautiful Um, idea that we have joy in the Lord. Now, there will be a time for weeping coming up in chapter 9, you know, so no no worries if you want to weep. We've we've got that coming for you. Uh, But I like Psalm 119 where it says, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. I rejoice in your word. Why? Because of what the word says. Sins washed away. Seated with Christ in heavenly places, going to reign and rule for him. Death is just going to be a second and boom, life uninterrupted. It's just a beautiful thing. And so the joy that he gives us. Verse 12 is one of my favorites in the whole chapter where it just says, and it's every Bible teacher's joy, really. People leave a message understanding and they are set free, you know. A joy that will strengthen them and uh, help them weather the storms of life. So uh, what follows there, they understand, uh, verse 12, they understand what the pastors are saying. And so they get food baskets. uh, They send it out to poorer folks in the congregation. Uh, There's benevolent acts of kindness. One writer said, a, always a sign God is getting through to someone when a person is unreasonably or extraordinarily kind because the conscience has been stirred because usually all we're thinking about is ourselves. So let's finish up verses 13 through 18. Now on the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. Okay, here we go again. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths. Okay, so where where they're getting instruction on how to celebrate the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles is another way to call it, all right, or Sukkot, the, the Jews call it. All right, so the, this is a, is a holiday now. So they want to search out the Bible. So Uh, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast, the holiday of the seventh month, which is our September and October, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout the towns of Jerusalem. 
Go out to the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths, I'll explain this, on their roofs and in their courtyards in the court of the house of God and in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. All right, so our last point tonight. So the people are taught the word of God, and number two, the people comprehend the word of God, and number three, the people obey the word of God. James puts it so nicely. He says, don't deceive yourself, don't kid yourself. And just hear the word, you've got to put it into practice. Or the only person you're fooling is yourself. And so obedience is the fruit of their newfound joy. All right, so joy is, of course, a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's indispensable. If you want to, if you want to serve the Lord with any amount of joy, you have to find that faith in your heart where you have that kind of trust, where you, where you respond in joy. So you read your Bible because there's joy. You serve out of joy. If you don't, your Christian life is going to be uh, miserable. It just will be. I mean, it'll just, it's no fun to keep commandments if you're not keeping commands uh, out of a joyous heart, out of a response to what God has done for you. And, and, and you will forget that if you're not in personal relationship and prayer and Bible reading and church uh, every, every day. You'll forget that. And, and it'll turn into drudgery. You know, I can't do this. I gotta do that. Oh, I gotta do that. I gotta read this. It's just awful. You have to be motivated by joy. That old commentator, Matthew Henry, said, holy joy is the oil to the wheels of our, of our obedience. You know, it just kind of keeps you going. John said, this is love for God, that we keep his commands, and his commands are not a burden. And what does he mean by that? He says, it's a joy to do what God wants us to do because it makes God happy and we love God and we want to make him happy. I mean, is it really hard not to cheat on a spouse you love? That's not a burden, right? So that's what he's saying. He, he, the joy of the Lord is our strength and we should serve him with that kind of joy. So here's a Jewish holiday, right? So as God would have it in his providence, they're coming up on one of the holidays. There are seven official ones. There, there are a lot of special days in Judaism, but there are seven major feasts, right? There are four spring ones and three fall ones. This is the very last fall feast, feast number seven, called Tabernacles. Tabernacles, the old King James word for tent, right? So, and I'll explain why. Or booths. Now, we think of booths like in a restaurant. You know, you go in, are you going to sit at the table or the booth? It's not that kind of booth. Think of a booth like a kiosk, right? Because really the word sukkot in the Hebrew 
means hut or shelter. So this Thanksgiving holiday, which was found in Leviticus 23, that, by the way, is commanded. They're commanded. You shall do no work. This thus said the Lord. He, he, he inculcates uh, fun into their annual uh, calendar with this wonderful holiday where the kids are really going to enjoy it and be able to learn uh, the word of the, the Lord. So what was it exactly? Well, there were three feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and this one, tabernacles, let's call it, booths, all right, that all males were commanded in Jerusalem to attend. And they'd come with offerings, and they would celebrate it with vast readings of the Bible and for seven days, right? And that's what it says here. So it was a really joyful agricultural feast, uh, like a harvest party uh, with a twist. Now, the rabbis would say, if you've never seen uh, Jerusalem during tabernacles, you don't know what rejoicing means. So it's a one week long time, a great rejoicing. Now, practical matters, verses 15 and following, they are to gather their materials to make these little, little shelters that they're going to have a camp out with their families, all, all Jewish males over 20 and their families were to make these little huts and they were not allowed to, to work or to do their chores or anything like that. It's a week-long camp out. And so, hey, I've got a couple slides. One is of modern, right? So if you go to Israel with us in May, you're gonna see things like this. I, I mean, they, they, this is ultra-Orthodox guy. Uh, I like to talk to them a lot. They don't like to talk to me, but I like to talk to them. Um, and they're gathering. They have supplies uh, for the Feast of Sukkot that's coming up. And we're there, they will make little lean-tos in their backyards. I think I have another picture of something where... Uh, they, and they eat and, and they, they celebrate uh, Jewish foods and there's dancing and singing and prayer and reading of the Bible. And you'll notice in the text that it says that they read every day. And when are they reading every day? Well, they're reading um, the Exodus because the Feast of Tense is to tell, to remind them about how God dwelled in a tent, the tabernacle, in the wilderness, in the middle of them all. So it's to, so they read stories about how the manna was there and how their sandals never uh, wore out, the story about the snakes and the uh, venomous bites, and Moses made this pole in the shape of a cross. And said, if you just look up there, you'll be healed from the serpent's bite. And Jesus quotes that and says, that's the cross. That's me on that cross in John chapter 3. So a really wonderful analogy there. So uh, we're going to see just God wants to impact children. Because how much fun is it to take a week and just start ripping apart branches and building this, these little tents, if you will, in their backyard for a big week-long camp out where you're going to hear all this fun stuff. Listen to what God cares. He cares about our kids. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, um, 
And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them on your hands and wear them on your forehead. By the way, that's figurative, right? He's not saying tie them on your hands, but the Pharisees saw that verse. And to this day, those ultra Orthodox Jews, they'll have of Deuteronomy this verse tied on their hands and in a box on their forehead. But it just says here, you know, put, tie them, uh, you know, like a string around your finger. Don't forget them, you know, put it on your forehead, you know, so every time you look in the mirror, you, you remember, love the Lord. You know, he, he wasn't saying literally put it on your forehead, but, you know, they did it. Uh, so write them on the doorposts of your house. And by the way, if you go to a Jewish home, uh, you will see a mezuzah, right? So they have a little scroll. You buy them at the dollar store or whatever, right? And you put it up there. It says, write them on the door. So there's a little scroll and it looks like the Ten Commandments. And they put it on their doorposts because of this verse, right? So figuratively, he's saying, make the word of God and loving God center in all of your life. Moms and dads, what I take away from this, that God says he commands this, this is for kids. This is for young people and adults. Of course, it's fun. But the kids are, are learning about the Lord and the Bible in a fun and exciting way. I just Googled around. Fun and exciting family devotions. I came up with all these wonderful things Focus on the family has, we have books out there on this very thing. Focus on the family has, a, you click on week one and it's, you know, build a fort and there's a Bible lesson and you build a fort. You know, number two is the treasure hunt and it's the parable of a man who finds buried treasure in his yard that Jesus spoke about. But it teaches you how to go about around the house and find a treasure. You know, these are things that God wants us to do because he put it in his commands, uh, in his word. So, I mean, I just look forward. I, we did that with our kids. Well, I mean, I hope they remember some of it, you know. Uh, but we turn off the lights and you know, talk about Jesus, the light of the world, a light a little candle, and then just anything to help them to remember the word of God. I look forward, you know, to, I mean, my kids are grown, but I look forward to the day when I could be a grandfather and build a fort with my grandson and granddaughter. And oh, oh and by the way, July 15th, we're going to be grandparents. What? <laughs> Most of you already knew that. <laughs> Most of you, how many of you did not know that? You see? I kept my promise. <laughs> and so, yeah, we found out at Christmas time. And so I can't wait to do stuff like this, you know, to build a fort and bring those kids in there. And hopefully Zach will come in and check the specs on the fort to make sure it doesn't cave in or anything. But uh, we look forward to that. So, you know, be aware that God wants us to Include fun and excitement in our sharing the gospel with the, with the youth. So, yes, harvest party. But the true thing, of course, was reading from the book of 
Exodus, how God uh, dwelled with them. I've got a slide about that with a picture of the tabernacle. You know, he's saying the Feast of Tabernacles is saying that God himself traveled with his people through the barren wilderness with them. He told them, you put my tent in the middle. And he counted it all off. How many to the left? How many to the right? How many to the north and south? And he says, I want to be smack dab in the middle of my people in his own tent. And then once in a while, you know, you, you found out who really lived there, you know, when he lit up the place. Uh, but, but this is, <laughs> you know, whoa. I mean, it's a different kind of tent and uh, different kinds of activities there. Talk about a campfire. So... This is what they commemorated. And, and listen, the feast is for us as well, that God is with us in our wilderness journeys. The angel of the Lord, he camps about those who fear him. He's with us. It, this is the great commemoration of this great feast. It's just wonderful. Now, in closing, many scholars, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, you do know that December 25th is not Jesus' birthday, right? We figured that out, right? In the fourth century, uh, the Catholic Church proclaimed that Christ's birth, right? And so, you know what? I like Christmas, and I don't mind that it's December 25th. Uh, however, many evangelical scholars believe, and so do I, that Jesus was born on the Feast of Tabernacles, and there are lots of ways to prove that. But uh, one of the best ways is that John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That dwelt among us is to pitch one's tent, you see. And so God himself fills the womb and becomes a baby born in Bethlehem. He he, he pitches his tent among humankind there in Bethlehem. So it started out, though, first in a tent in Sinai, right? You see that. Then in a temple in Jerusalem where the glory of God filled that place. And then in a baby in Bethlehem. Then in the hearts of those believers at Pentecost and the church age, he dwells in the temple or the tent of the believer, and then one day, from a throne in the new Jerusalem. Check this closing scripture out here from Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now, the tent, the tabernacle, the booth, it's the same thing. The dwelling of God is with men, and he will be with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, visibly, tangibly, right there with the hand that wipes every tear from their eyes, a physical hand touching your physical face. There will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain for the old order of things have passed away. He who 
was seated on the throne, said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That is hallelujah and amen to that. Amen. This is what the significance of this beautiful last feast number seven is when Jesus Christ is visible and he is the light of the world. No need for sun, moon, and stars in that day because the glory of, the, of God just lights the entire place. Uh, these dynamics, the three of them, that the word of God front and center preached, the word of God fully comprehended by his people, and then put into practice. They went out and they did. They looked it up. Well, how are we supposed to celebrate this thing? They found Leviticus 23, and they did it, and they were blessed. We need to follow those three principles, and we'll be blessed as well. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Lord, we love you. We, we thank you for always keeping us centered in your truth so that we know how to live our Christian lives. We ask for your blessing now, Lord, that you would seal these things in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.